Welcome to, if you're talking in football terms, the week six edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of a Bronstein Amalgamated and uh, Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. And uh, guys, it was, uh, I guess, a satellite crashing back to earth. Uh, what we saw on Tuesday night with the Bills and their performance in Nashville. Uh, but since we uh, last did a show, there's uh, been a lot to talk about. And I, we're going to get into the Bills. Of course, we're going to have uh, Joel Staniszewski take a look at Monday night's game against the Chiefs uh, through a betting standpoint. And uh, also Mike Rodak uh, from AL.com is going to join us, our old friend, uh, to talk not only college football and the big matchup between Alabama and Georgia this weekend, but plenty of Bills talk, uh, his thoughts on what's going on with the bills, what's going on around the league, really uh, trends. Uh, but major, major hockey news uh, here in Buffalo with the signing of a former Hart trophy winner, Taylor Hall. Um, what'd you think of that guys? Because I think we had been um, convinced that not much was going to happen, especially after a few days with Kevin Adams, not doing much. And then to sign one of the premier players in the league, uh, to a one-year, $8 million contract. Yeah, we got lulled into thinking, you know, all this talk about the Pagulas uh, tightening the belt and being economical and efficient and, you know, having this internal salary cap. And then, you know, you almost thought there wouldn't be many big moves to be had. And to not only get him, but get him on, you would think a guy doing a one-year deal, a guy of Taylor Hall's prominence would you know, do a one-year deal somewhere, uh, maybe with a contender, or uh, usually you see those short-term deals with, um, you know, teams that are ready to win. And I found it interesting that they're able to, to get them on a one-year deal. Uh, Ralph Kruger seems to have played a major role in that, uh, having coached Taylor Hall before, but I think it put a little bit of a jolt of optimism into uh, Sabres fans, which was kind of nice to see. They've been, uh, it's been a dark place on the, the hockey Twitter corner uh, of Buffalo sports. Um, of course, you can't have too many nice things in Buffalo sports. Uh, Taylor Hall signs and two days later, the Bills lose. Uh, there's, just, there's a balancing act that seems to happen in the universe. <laughs> yeah, you can't have two things going well at the same time. Matt, what kind of difference do you think Taylor Hall can make? You know, there's other – Sabres have weaknesses on defense and goaltending and – Secondary scoring, if he plays on the same line as Jack Eichel, that might not necessarily shore up where they were lacking in the depth department. But does having two Hart Trophy caliber players make up for those other weaknesses? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, you, you what seems to be the case with the Sabres uh, for as long as I've been here and, and following them and watching them is that there's guys that are, you know, playing a line too high. You know, there's – second liners that should be third liners and, you know, on down the list. And I, I think this finally gives them a chance to put guys in roles that, that should work. Maybe you get even more out of Jack Eichel because you've got that top line firepower to go with them. Both of the, I'm interesting to see how it'll all work. Cause they're both kind of those, those guys that like to carry the puck and drive the play themselves. And they're going to be playing together, but um, it's not a, a one, one, you know, one move fix. Uh, I think they're a little more broken than that, but at the same time, you, you don't complain when 
a team that, you know, the whole thing was do something, right? Like whatever's been going on is not working. This thing is a mess. And they go out and get arguably the best player on the market. So, um, you know, yeah, they have some other needs elsewhere, but I think when, you know, much like um, we see in a lot of other sports, uh, when you've got the offense to kind of drive you, I think it helps. You know, this, the cynic in me wonders if this was just an $8 million draft pick acquisition, because when you see that one-year contract and the Sabres, as Jonah was just saying, they still have needs on defense and particularly uh, in goal, that uh, the Taylor Hall, if things aren't working out and the Sabres aren't showing signs of being a playoff team, gets traded at the deadline. So he's kind of comes into Buffalo as as a rental until further notice until they he's willing to sign an extension and Taylor Hall. Yes. He was just MVP two years ago, but he's had injuries. The production's since gone down. He hopes to rekindle some of that with uh, his offensive production from his MVP season with Ralph Kruger, who he knows. Um, But yeah, that part of me is just like, did they just sign this guy for PR purposes because they were so desperate to flip that narrative Uh, and give fans something to get excited about because they, it is that dark, but maybe that's okay. Maybe because things are so just so deplorably, you know, bad. I mean, they're just so that's, I know that's probably not the the right thing. They they needed that as much as anything, something to excite the fan base is almost, I wouldn't say more important, but it's probably equally as important as how many goals and how many games they win with Taylor Hall next year. Or how about exciting Jack Eichel? Uh, convince him that we're willing to do some things to make you happy to keep you around and that they're liquid right like we've got the money to sign guys see we will we will put money into our hockey team like we're not totally um and like you said there's it's eight million dollars it's not um they're not going to be um going broke because they signed taylor hall but it shows like yeah when we need to and for the right guy and in the right situation, we're going to write the checks uh, and we're going to do that. There was certainly some, um, some, you know, PR to it. I, I think there was appearances and for a lot of different people, for the fans, for, uh, for, for Jack Eichel, probably for Ralph Krueger. Um, you know, I think they needed to kind of show that, that they were in this thing and whether Taylor Hall is here for six months or, you know, six years, um, it's they a needed a shot in the arm. Yeah. And it, it, the move came also not too long after the great Bob McKenzie. And I have to, I call him the great Bob McKenzie, number one, because I, I love the guy. He's, I consider him a good friend. But also, this isn't a rumor monger, Bob McKenzie from TSN, in which he had a report and he put it out on Twitter because he's kind of retired. Um, and, uh, but he still has the reporting chops and things still come to him that he was hearing that. Jack Eichel might be on the market, or at least the Sabres were listening to offers as the Sharks were starting to circle uh, because of what's going on in Buffalo and the fact that Kevin Adams is a novice general manager, and maybe the Sabres are cash-strapped and might be looking to unload. And it took the Sabres an awful long time to get around to kind of denying that Jack Eichel was available. And yes, Kevin Adams has said multiple times, uh, we're keeping Jack, et cetera, et cetera. But he's also said in recent interviews that he really hasn't had discussions with Jack Eichel yet. He hopes to get to know him better. Uh, we hope, I hope to sit down with him and explain things. If Jack Eichel gets so upset that he wants to leave, he can force his way out of here. He has that much leverage. 
uh, much like Dominic Hasek did. And, you know, obviously Jack Eichel doesn't have multiple heart trophies like Dom did and, you know, Vezinas and, you know, all that hardware, but Jack Eichel, if he gets to a point where he starts talking about wanting out, what are the Sabres to do? Uh, uh, just to, and it, it would further entrench the fans of being upset that they're wasting this guy. Um, so the Taylor Hall signing comes. And also, I don't know, you guys see the, uh, the ad that was posted. The Sabres are looking for pretty much a fan. Super fan. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is really putting a bad fan spin Zara. on it. Zara of like, football fans. Are- yeah, well, it's for, for hockey, but it's like a yeah. fan manipulator. I mean, if you take a look at the, the requirements, it's about leveraging market information to get people to be happy. You know, it's not that the people who are supposed to do that are your general manager and your coach and your play, your roster, right? Your players. So it's like, but put no, some of that into the things uh, are, on ice product. Yes. Things are so bad. We're going to hire somebody to try to let the fans know that we give a shit. <laughs> you know, so except that, but they need that. That was the whole thing with Dwayne last year. And it wasn't just losing games and hockey decisions. It was screwing up the jerseys and the alumni nights right. and not having the, the arena upgrades, you know? Yeah. Be not being on the same page mentally and emotionally as the fans. I really, I think they absolutely need somebody to spearhead that effort. I mean, I don't know what qualifies somebody to be, you know, whatever this middleman between the fans and the Sabres, but organizationally, they really do need someone to, correct that path because it got way out of whack it started several seasons ago but it really hit the skids last year yeah and I think that you know it comes to and you mentioned Dwayne and I really think that what's critical with the Pagulas and the people underneath them is that they need to adjust their attitudes a little bit to not be so aloof about the fans and maybe this person who gets hired would help in that regard. But to me, it just seems like somebody who's going to work on algorithms to, you know, work, you know, to, to game the system to try to get people into, you know, you know, uh, deciding to buy a ticket or a Jersey. Um, but that attitude when Dwayne became a thing and John Vogel wrote about him, you know, the feedback that we were getting was that, why are you giving this guy, this guy's just looking for his 15 minutes of fame. Why are you get? Why are you rather than actually listening to the guy and saying that this isn't a guy that's just getting 15 minutes of fame? This is a guy that struck a nerve because he's saying what thousands and thousands of fans are really feeling, and he decided to go on air and make it a big make it a big thing. And uh, rather than saying, you know what, we need to, we, this is a problem for our organization that we have fans who feel this way. It was screw that guy. You know, it was like you know, come on, man. Like he wasn't worth their time. Well, maybe now they get around to the point with looking at, you know, mending fences with the fans. Um, hopefully that's, hopefully that's something that, that happens uh, down at Seymour uh, Knox Plaza. Here's a question uh, for both of you guys. Do you think what we're going to go, we're what, seven months since the last time we saw the Sabres play a hockey game, right? And it'll be, a couple months longer, um, at least probably January. So that's, you know, 10, 11 months, uh, since we'll see a Sabres hockey game. Do you think that is a good thing for the Pagulas and what we're talking about? Kind of this, this fan relationship or is it button? Maybe. Yeah. Could it be one of those things where it's like, Hey, 
you know, we needed a break. And then the Sabres come back and the fans are like, all right, they got Taylor Hall. Jack's still awesome. We missed hockey. Like uh, that break was, was really refreshing. Like let's, let's get back in there and see what this team's about. Or will it be like, man, we went 10 months without hockey and that was pretty great. (laughs) But they'll be coming back. They won't be coming back in the middle of football season like a normal. That's true. I think that'll help hockey as a whole in general is that the season will start around when football is ending. So they'll be hitting their stride. They'll be, they'll have all the rustiness banged off their chassis, you know, by the time the Super Bowl comes and goes. And they'll win the first 10 games. It's really just a matter of whether they can. <laughs> that is their move. The 10 <laughs> that is their signature move uh, is to their, their famous trick. But they script the know. first 10 games all wins. It's like there there could be like an out of sight, out of mind deal where it's like, man, uh, my life's been noticeably less, you know, noticeably less stressful without watching the Sabres. Maybe I won't go back to games like, you know, maybe I won't tune in and care so much about this team. But I think we know sports fans around here well enough to know that what Joan is talking about, a quick, uh, quick four game winning streak to start the season will be all it takes to rope some people back in. All it really took is this Taylor Hall signing, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Jonah's the only one of us three who's lived here his entire life. Um, I've been here since 2000s and I've covered both hockey and football, but I, I don't know what you guys think. And, and Matt, maybe, you know, first impressions or, you know, as, as an outsider, you may, you know, you have some valuable insight on here too, but you know, the idea, I think that Bill's fans seem to be able to come and go a little more easily. Maybe it's because there's one game a week maybe because there's only 16 games and you get a good idea as to what your team is about and you can detach yourself and, you know, come in and out and not live and die with it. Whereas hockey fans in Buffalo really seem to have a much more of emotional commitment. Maybe there aren't as many of them, um, but when there's 82 games and the fact that they could be playing on any given night of the week that you're going to tune in and it could really affect your Wednesday morning, your Thursday morning, you know, uh, this week, not withstand, you know, this week, you know, not, in, not, not included in that discussion since the bills played on a Tuesday, but um, there seems to be a much more of an emotional impact or effect that the hockey team has on its fans versus the football team having on its fans. I don't know if do you guys agree with that. Well, I don't know because people get pretty depressed on a Monday after the bills lose on Sunday. But they seem to shake it off the twit. Like, for instance, you see, like the Twitter, like you see Sabres Twitter is, as Matt said, such a dark place. I don't think that Bill's Twitter ever got that dark, even, you know. I think what's interesting, I I, I think to to your point, Tim, I was trying to kind of think while you were talking about. So was I. And I, I think what's, what's true is that like this is really the the last two years are like the first like good bills teams that i've covered and so all those other years though it's not as if a really bad performance like got people to check out the next week they were just as excited for bills dolphins week 12 now maybe they weren't like you know chomping at the bit or like you know like like they are now with every one of these games over the moon. But there is, I think there's an element in football where it's like, all right, there's a game on Sunday. I can get myself charged up for that. Uh, what happens happens. And I flush it. Tailgate. Like, I got my routines. I got my, and it's on the weekend, right? 
it's a yeah. leisure activity. Like it's more, it can be more of a casual thing for people. Um, there's a lot more casual Bills fans where it's like, it's a social activity. It's a, um, you got to know what's happening with the Bills, right? When you're going into work or you're see somebody in the neighborhood, man, how about those Bills? Uh, they blew it again. But with hockey, you really do have to, I feel like there's a sense that you have to be committed in some way to keep up with the ebbs and flows of what's going on. And then there's also, it's not as if it's a football game is a little bit longer than a hockey game, but not by much. And you're watching 82 of them as a hockey fan, like, and it's a Wednesday night and they're playing at nine o'clock and you stay up till midnight and they suck again. And you wake up early for work and you, there starts to be a sense of like, what am I doing here? Whereas even if the bills aren't good, it's a once a week thing. And you're, you know, you're sitting at the party, you had your beers and it's a Sunday fantasy team. You know, you're You're relaxing on a Sunday, you know, Oh, they're, they're four and six. Well, you know, I'll do yard work and sort of half watch the game. There's none of that with hockey. I mean, you don't, you know, you're just not turning it on at that point is probably what happens if they're, you know, I think there needs to be, you need to have your team show that they're, they value your emotional commitment your emotional financial, all the, all the commitment, the different various forms of commitment. You need to play to the diehards. You need to play to the diehards. If you're running a hockey team, I think that, and that could be a a disconnect for the Pagulas in some ways. Think about the, you don't have to do that. You flip the switch, you turn the lights on. Absolutely not. There's such little effort involved, but there's also just like, it's all low hanging fruit. You see how they promote the team, right? It's like, Oh, like you could, throw out any tweet about Josh Allen, uh, you know, any corny graphic, any corny saying and throw it on a t-shirt and people are just lapping it up. But like hockey, I feel like you can't just be lazy about it. you got to cater to the, the most passionate because those are the ones that you can count on and you don't have as many, you want the stragglers and the hangers on and the bandwagon people get to the playoffs. Everybody wants to be a part of the party of playoff hockey in Buffalo when the weather's getting nice and you can go down to the plaza and, uh, you know, one day again, hopefully gather in large numbers and watch games and, uh, you know, the sun's out in Buffalo. Everybody wants to be a part of that party. Nobody wants to be a part of the, oh, they're on another losing streak and it's February and, and you, what, I have to pay six US dollars to walk through the wind tunnel that is downtown Buffalo and watch that game and I'm going to be sleep deprived at work the next day. No, thanks. Don't want to be a part of that party. So it's, it's a little bit different in that way uh, than football. And maybe the Pagulas are weirdly, they had hockey first, so they shouldn't understand that. But cause like you said, football, they came in and it's like, here, flip the lights on. And uh, wow, this is easy. This thing is making me a lot of money. Like that's just an NFL team. You don't have to be a genius to, to figure that out. Especially in Buffalo. Like there's nothing that any owners could do to get these people to stop showing up. I, I guess a global pandemic is the only thing that can happen to get people to stop going to the hammers lot and hammering themselves through tables and doing what they do. The team doesn't need to be good for people to enjoy that fan experience. Even right? so I'm getting tweets about of people saying they want to organize groups to swarm the stadium. And, you know, every time I tweet about fans in the stadium, it's like, you know, my mentions are filled with people that want to charge the gates. So even the pandemic doesn't seem to uh, keep some people away or at least wanting to be away. They're starting to gather at the airport. I've seen that on the news to wish the bills uh, well when they leave standing at the, at the chain link fence for the trip to Nashville. 
I miss that. That's a that. good idea. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, sound reasoning. Well, all right, guys. So uh, we got a loaded show, and maybe the hosts are loaded too. Uh, you don't know. Uh, but um, want to thank uh, everybody for tuning in uh, to another episode. Uh, you get to watch uh, Mike Rodak uh, talk some college football and also the Bills. You can hate listen to that. And uh, Joel Staniszewski uh, is going to give us his thoughts on uh, the Bills and Chiefs on Monday night. Uh, Bills right now, uh, as this is being recorded, four and a half point underdogs with a total of about 57 and a half, 57 in some places. Uh, so that's been a big shift because the Bills opened as three point underdogs and uh, with a total of 55. So people think that the Chiefs are going to win and they're going to win big. Uh, I want to remind you that Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner the leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on acquisition and mergers, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. Shampo Travis, Bison Kirshner, a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Joining us now on Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. It is Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas after a rough Tuesday night uh, for Joel uh, all the way around. The Bills fan in him took some lumps. The handicapper in him took some lumps. Uh, he went into the game 4-0 on the year, uh, giving us uh, his tips against the spread and uh, he told you to take the bills and give the points and to take the under, which I agreed with him. I'm not, I'm not making fun of him. I thought the bills should have won this game in a blowout. Um, but what went wrong, Joel? Yeah. From a, from a betting standpoint, um, I looked at the numbers. I looked at a bunch of different uh, metrics that I get before uh, picking a game, picking a side and picking a total. And everything that I looked at told me to play Titans and over. And I just didn't like it. I just felt the Bills were going to be a better team. I thought the numbers weren't going to reflect the, the issues that the Titans would have, that I thought they would have with a, a bunch of players out. Uh, I knew that we were going to be without Tredavious White and um, Matt Milano, and I thought that was going to hurt. Uh, hurt us, but I didn't think it was going to hurt us as much as it did. Um, and with with the Titans being a run-first team and the Titans having a bad run defense, I thought that it was going to be a lot of running the ball, which is going to lead towards uh, an under bet. Uh, but when, when, when you fumble or when you have an interception in your uh, inside your 30, at the beginning of the game, you have a fumble at the inside of the 20 at the end of the game, and you have another turnover that leads to inside the 20, which led to another score. 
Without those turnovers, that game is a stone-cold under. Uh, and without the Bills playing the worst game that they've played so far this year, this game should have been Bills and under. Uh, but again, how, how the game plays out is a big thing when it comes to betting and being a fan and watching is you can't go there and look at what should have happened or what they shouldn't have done. And if they didn't do this, then type of mentality. Uh, but it, you know, if, if we're looking at the numbers, if you're looking at the numbers and you're looking at the stats, you're looking at the game as a whole and you take away the turnovers, I feel that the bills would have been a better team and would have won that game had they not played so poorly and had um, the, the turnovers that they did have. Joel, what did the data say heading into the game? I know you'd mentioned that you maybe uh, factored in too much, too much of the intangibles. Yeah. Uh, it, it basically was, I was looking at a couple different sites that, that rate the teams uh, and it had the bills rated eight and it had the Titans rated five. Uh, it had um, them – I looked at a bunch of um, – uh, I can't even think of the word right now – simulation sites, there you go, uh, and a majority of them had the Titans winning. And I just thought that the, the numbers and the data couldn't factor in uh, the emotional loss and the lack of practice and, you know, 13 or whatever it was, players being out, even though they weren't major, major contributors, um, two of them were starting receivers that were out. So they only had one legitimate starting receiver playing, and it just so happens he was just destroying us all over the field, and we weren't making the proper adjustments. We saw, although Stefan Diggs had a really good game, we saw that they were doubling him up a lot and giving him the underneath routes. This is something that we should have started doing and, and doubling up and, and, you know, focusing on, on that player instead of, you know, focusing on the run. And we didn't even stop that well. I mean, in, a, in the long run, yes, we did have a good run defense, but that's because they were throwing all over us. They didn't need to run as much as they, as they, as they normally did. Joel, as a, as a better, maybe, maybe not as a handicapper or as a um... – uh, prognosticator on Tim Graham and friends, but as a better, what is your approach typically to a game like last week where you have the line didn't come out until really late. Um, and there are so many things that you just don't know. What do you notice about, I guess, how much action is typically on a game like that and, and what the, the danger is and even touching it at all, given the, the weird factors that you mentioned. I think for the most part, when you see a game where you have so many question marks in terms of when it's going to be played, if it's going to be played, uh, who's going to be playing, who's not going to be playing, especially when those players in the, in the past or in the future are, are really key players, you know, quarterback, you don't know if they're going to play or not. Uh, you normally stay away from it, but a game like this, a single game on a single day, it's still going to get tons of action just like a Sunday night game, a Monday night game, a Thursday night game, you're going to get a lot of action because that's the main thing that you have to bet on. So you have people who have lost all weekend long trying to chase money. You got people who have won all weekend long playing with house money. So you get tons of action on, on single games like that, regardless of the question marks that are in place. 
So Joel, um, interesting numbers this week. Uh, the Chiefs open as three-point favorites uh, already at four and a half. Uh, it looks like uh, the total 55 uh, has gone up uh, at least two points, maybe two and a half points, depending on where you get it. Um, what are your initial thoughts on Chiefs at Bills Monday night and, um, and how the numbers have fluctuated? Obviously not a lot of faith in the, not a lot of betting faith in the Bills right now. Yeah. Uh, when, when the, when the rest of the world doesn't pay so much attention to the bills, they're not going to overreact like they did this week. Uh, when you see the bills get blown out by a team that everyone thinks they should have beat and could have beat, and you see the mistakes and, you know, you go back to, Oh, well, that's what Josh Allen does. That's why he only had 50% completion rate in college. He makes mistakes and he did. I mean, that second interception was a huge mental error. And you could see the team as a whole, when you watch that game, like they were not mentally in that game. They were, you could even see like the, like the look on Josh Allen's face when he would go out on the field, like he looked like he was nervous, like he didn't want to make another mistake. And he wasn't, he wasn't efficient. He wasn't uh, as, as sure of himself as he was in previous games. And that comes with making mistakes. You know, when, when, you're, when you're throwing great and you're getting completions and you're getting touchdowns, he's going to have that, that little extra swagger where he's going to just feel like he can make every throw. But when you have that little bit of hesitation because of early turnovers and being behind, you can really tell that. Um, I, I don't know if I really answered your question. Well, <laughs> this was – I don't know either, but it did uh, – it, it brings up a point too – uh, that the Bills through those first four games really had uh, a luxury of playing with early leads. And we saw the stats that they had the NFL high in, in terms of playing with the lead versus an NFL low amount of time while behind. Um, and yes, the Bills did have to come from behind twice, really, right? Miami and uh, against the Rams. They did have to right. come from behind, but they were really in control of those games and proved to be the better team or, or showed throughout the game that they were clearly the better of the two teams. But Tuesday night against Tennessee, we saw them really have to dig from behind, um, not just with one score, but with multiple scores. I don't want to say that they folded, but um, it, it really does make that big a difference. And we're learning about the Bills uh, – somewhat this is just one example really but can they play from a couple scores down and that's where the the old Josh Allen that everybody's been nervous about it really makes you nervous because you have to take a chance you have to score fast or at least uh, the team has it in their minds that they try to score you know we need we need to press and um, and then maybe things unravel yeah and we saw no urgency when they came down and scored that touchdown there was zero urgency they weren't running hurry up. They weren't calling two plays at a time. They, they were just taking their sweet time. And when they were down by three scores, they scored a touchdown. There was still 10 minutes left, but you have to get the ball back twice in order to, to do that. And uh, I just, I mean, from a Josh Allen standpoint, he played a pretty poor game uh, compared to what he has been playing. Uh, Andre Roberts had probably the worst game as a bill by far. Uh, Josh Norman did not have a good game. Uh, Tyler Croft did not have a good game. 
you know, Dawson Knox did not have a good game. Stephon Diggs, yeah, he had a he had a hundred yards, but he also had a lot a couple of drops that he shouldn't have had. And without John Brown in the lineup, uh, I think that really affected their ability to throw, and you know, it, it affected their ability to score quickly and move the ball quickly. So how do you bounce back after going uh, 0 for 2 uh, with your picks on Tuesday? What do you, what do you like on Monday night? Yeah, so, so both teams are coming off of a loss that they should have won. Uh, the Chiefs lost, but not as badly as the Bills. So they're both in rebound mode. I think they're both going to come out and, and play the way that they have been prior to, to last week's game. Um, my initial reaction when I saw, when I saw the line was uh, to, to say bet the Chiefs, but that was probably still me being angry at the Bills for playing so badly. And I want to say that it was like halftime, and I realized I didn't have my Josh Allen jersey on. And I was like, well, oh, my God, I, hey, listen, I blew listen. this game. We are here. You are a handicapper. You're supposed to be looking purely at the numbers, but we could have anybody like that on the show. We have you on because you're a Bills <laughs> fan, but these things will happen. You're supposed right. to be the guy who talks the Bills fan off of these um, idiosyncrasies, you know, these, these weird, you know, whether it be superstition or thinking too much with your heart, but you are, uh, you're prone to this uh, just as much as they are. Oh, of course. Of course. I have, I have a friend and uh, he's become a Bills fan this year because he's not playing fantasy football. And he texted me at halftime and he's like, sorry, I'm not watching the game. Am I causing this loss? And that's when I realized I wasn't wearing my jersey. And I was like, oh my God, like between him and I, we just blew this game for the Bills uh, from, a, from a fan standpoint. Uh, but as, as I was kind of answering your previous question, I feel like the betting has been affected by the Bills' performance on Tuesday. Um, and the line is moving up for the total, and the line is moving from three to four and a half on the Chiefs. Now, I thought three, two and a half, three was the right number on this game, uh, but the way that it's moving, it's, it's gone, in my opinion, too far. Um, so from a betting standpoint, I'm going to go against my gut like I did with the Titans game, and I'm going to go with what the numbers tell me. And that is the Bills plus the four and a half and under. But I would also maybe think about waiting to bet uh, because just from earlier today until right now, it went from three and a half and four to four and a half everywhere. And from 57 to 57 and a half everywhere. So you're getting a majority of the bets um, from what I am seeing. 71% of the bets are coming in on Kansas City. Um, I don't know exactly where they're getting all these numbers from, um, but when you look at when you look at this, I mean, it, it, it's when, when the when the public's all betting on a side, the smart move is to go to the other side, and the numbers are telling me to also go to the other side. So I'm I'm going to say the Bills plus the four and a half, and I'm going to say under fifty seven and a half. That really in the the fan is. I'm sorry, Matt, I was cutting you the off. The numbers in the fan are aligned this time, which is nice for Joel. He doesn't have to uh, – he doesn't – well, he can go at against – Well, first, like I said, at first I was thinking the Chiefs. I was like, oh, Chiefs, Buffalo can't play any defense. They can't stop Ryan Tannehill. Uh, but, again, it, it's, you know, it's week to week. You have to 
as a as a player, they always say you got to put this in your rearview mirror and move on. And as a Bills fan, you got to do the same thing because you can't expect um, the Bills to go sixteen and zero. You could want them to go sixteen and zero, but they're not going to. No one's going to. And you have to expect there's going to be losses. And if you're a Chiefs fan, you're just as nervous about this game as you are as a Bills fan. Neither team wants to lose two in a row. With Neither the way team can afford to lose two in a row. Right. With the way, though, that the Bills have been putting up points um, and the Chiefs being the Chiefs, I think that a lot of people w- wouldn't even look at the number. They just want to say over. You know, the casual better would just say, oh, I don't know what the number is. I'm going over. Um, yes. But 57 and a half, I mean, teams have been – the Bills, I think, went into last game averaging over 30 points. The, the Chiefs, you can expect them yeah. to score 30. So that adds up to 60 right there. Why, why the under? Yeah, so when you look at both of their scores, you're looking at 30 and a half uh, versus 29.8. Uh, my, my thought of it is is that one of the – it's going to be close. I'm not saying – if someone told me to bet the over and I'm thinking under, like 57 and a half is probably right on where I would think. If it was 55, I would probably think play the, un, uh, play the over. Since it's gone up two and a half points and looks like it would continue to, at this point I would lean towards the under but not as, as hard as I, would lean, as I would lean towards the Bills, at least right now. Got it. Got it. Well, Joel, thanks. I hope you uh, have a quick recovery here. On the, uh, as the Bills keep calling yeah. uh, they did Tuesday night, they kept calling it a short week. It's really six days. It's not – I don't know how short that really is. And I will want to say, and, uh, you know, the, the, the one excuse or pushback that you've gotten from Bills fans about why – the team lost on Tuesday. Well, they were preparing for two teams. And yes, I think there's some validity to that, but that means they should have extra prep then for the chiefs, right? If they were really torn heading into that Titans right. game, then ergo uh, they have extra practice uh, and preparation for the chiefs. Let's hope so. All right. Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas. Uh, thanks for joining us on Tim Graham and friends. Brought right. to you by CTBK. Thanks guys. Pleased to have back with Tim Graham and friends. I guess technically his first appearance with the show known as Tim Graham and friends, but a longtime friend of the show, former co-host of this show, Mike Rodak of AL.com. And what AL stands for is Alabama because he works for the Birmingham News, but the company also has papers in Huntsville and Mobile. So he really covers the whole state and uh, with what's going on with the Crimson Tide. And I'm sure he has some Buffalo Bills thoughts for us too. Um, Mike, thanks for joining the show. Emphasis on former co-host because, you know, I figured I wouldn't be allowed back after being fired last time. So I'm just glad I'm here. You wouldn't be allowed back if what? After being fired last time from, you know, the actual Tim Graham show. So I'm just, I'm glad I'm here, you know. You were brought back after you were fired. True. Okay. So that's, you know, that's a bad reference. You were, uh, Mike was fired briefly for about 48 hours. He was fired from the Tim Graham show for, uh, for, uh, for lack of gratitude. (laughs) Disrespecting me and Gene Okerlund. (laughs) <laughs> that's um, true that's a fact that's not we're not making that up mike rodak was fired from the tim graham show we drink on this show uh, 
Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, we're usually uh, record this in the morning, so I'm not drinking. Uh, I, I usually don't drink, but yeah, it's a free for all. Uh, the Tim Graham show, or I'm sorry, Tim Graham and friends uh, is brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. And uh, with the usual crew, Matthew Fairburn of the athletic Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein consolidated and uh, Mike, uh, we have to get your thoughts on the bills. I know that you still watch them closely um, down there in Alabama. Hey, come on. You, your old, old habits die hard. Well, watch is a strong word, but follow me might be a better follow them. You don't, you haven't seen any games. There's barely any games on TV down here. I mean, maybe this past one on Tuesday night because it's a primetime national game, but you might get three or four games a year. I think last year is what we got down here. Is, is it watch or hate watch? Both. <laughs> but you're some big swing and dong sports writer. Shouldn't you have uh, the football package? I mean, I what have, do you mean? I have, you only have, watch the games they get in Birmingham? Right. So in Birmingham, you're going to get the Cowboys, you're going to get the Saints, the Patriots. I mean, it's the national teams. Not too many Bills games. I do have the Red Zone channel, but I don't have Sunday ticket. I'm not paying for that. The Bills were the only game on Tuesday. Right. So I watched that one. That's probably the first full Bills game I've watched since the Steelers Sunday night game last year. So I, I, I follow them, but I... I don't watch the all 22, so I'm not as educated as some other people out there. Let's put it that way. Well, give us your impressions on the Bills. I know that the listeners would, uh, would love to hear what you have to say. I think, well, I think this is certainly a week of reckoning. I think there's, it seemed like everything was just happy-go-lucky for, for four weeks, and I'd say justified to a certain extent, but I think we can all agree that people might have gotten carried away a little bit. And we've seen that happen before. I mean, you were around, or at least two of you were around for 2011 and going 3-0 and beating the Patriots and how that felt around Buffalo. And even, what, 2008, they started 4-0 that year. And the bottom kind of fell out just because it wasn't quite what it appeared to be early on. I'm not saying, I think, what, they, they lost like nine of their last ten games one of those years. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I think we kind of saw a crashing back to earth and I thought you had the good stat, too, in your story this morning or yesterday, whenever it was, about some of the, the bad losses that they've had as far as giving up 42 points and what, losing by 26. And four of them in the past X number of years have come under Sean. I mean, it, it's a bad look. Now, I, th- I don't know if it's yeah, – I don't, I don't sense that people are you know, overly concerned in Buffalo, and they probably shouldn't be quite yet, but – Look at their schedule coming up. I mean, you have the Chiefs. You have, what, the Patriots after that. Things can turn quickly. And, um, you know, I think it's a week where you know, it certainly seems to have tested some people and what their beliefs might be about the team. And, um, you know, just trying to weed out what's, what's real and what's not, essentially, and what's, uh, what seems a little bit too good to be true. Yeah, I think really the problem uh, when it comes to sorting out your, your thoughts on the Bills uh, was that the defense was the foundation, and that was an accepted fact, really, uh, for months and months. Uh, last season, throughout the offseason, everything was the assumption, myself included. I'm not saying people were totally silly to think this way, but the belief being um, this defense will carry it, and hopefully Josh Allen can figure things out. And now it's totally flipped on its head where 
Josh Allen looks like he's legit. I'm not haven't and haven't uh, not going to say MVP candidate, but he's clearly in the top third of NFL quarterbacks keeping up, especially in a time when the entire league is off to a hot start. Um, and he is, he looks like he's right up there with the, uh, with the best of them. Um, and the offense is doing great. Brian Dable uh, seems to be calling the, the, the right plays, uh, pushing the right buttons, but the defense uh, is in tatters. And I don't think you can just blame the injuries, but it's just, it's just been a, a total uh, annihilation of, of what people thought about their team heading into the season. Yeah. And I'm sure that's something that, you know, great Sean McDermott's gears, just because that's his side of the ball. That's, you know, the pride factor that must come with your defense letting the team down. Not that you know, their offense was good enough to win on Tuesday night, but I mean, their offense basically won the first four games of the year for him. And, um, Look, I think for to a certain extent, they kind of rode what they had in 2017, that defense, which was kind of the leftovers from Rex. You had, what, Lorenzo Alexander and Kyle. Uh, Jerry Hughes, who probably was at a higher level back then when he was a little bit younger. And those guys, along with some of the new blood they, they brought in, which, to Sean's credit, that 2017 draft, I think we can all agree, probably wasn't Doug Whaley's work. And um, at least in terms of the picks they made, and, and it's a different discussion about the trade that they made, but in picking Tredavious White and Matt Milano, especially in the fifth round, and then, um, you know, bringing in the two safeties they did that offseason in free agency, that was the core of that defense, I think, that was talked about the last couple of years. And they really haven't been able to backfill, you know, after losing Lorenzo. With Jerry, you know, he's not – He's probably not a slouch right now, but he's probably not the same player he was a couple of years ago. With Kyle being gone, you know, Poyer and Hyde probably aren't making as many plays as they once were. I think they're both going to be 30 pretty, pretty soon. You know, their best football might be behind them. I think that's, that's something that could be true, um, you know, as we go forward. But point being, they didn't really find the right guys to replace them. You know, they lose Star, for instance, this year. And, okay, we drafted Harrison Phillips in the third round. He doesn't seem to be a guy who's going to fill that void very well. Um, some of the free agent signings I've had the past couple of years in defense, I don't think have really, any of them have really exceeded expectations. And, um, you know, to a certain extent, the defense was just rotted. And, um, you know, can they get it back? I mean, yeah, I think when you get Milano and Trey White back from injuries, that's going to help. If we can get Hyde and Poyer and Hughes playing at a level where they're a little bit more noticeable, that's going to help. But, um, you know, is, is Ed Oliver a difference maker to the tune of being a top 10 pick? I think that's probably still up for debate. You know, you, you sign a guy like A.J. Klein, you sign, what, Vernon Butler, Quentin Jefferson, Mario Addison. I didn't really hear a lot of those names the other night or Tuesday night watching that game. So, you know, it's, it's still, I think, a matter of you got to keep it going. And what they had in 2017 for defense, you can have the same players – three, four seasons later, but doesn't mean the same results are going to come. Two quarterback hits, uh, not no sacks and only two quarterback hits on a team that, again, ravaged by COVID, not all necessarily along the offensive line, of course, but still uh, missing a couple of starting wide receivers and uh, Taylor Lewan uh, out a good chunk of the game with a shoulder injury uh, late in the first half and didn't, didn't matter. Uh, the, 
the Titans still marched down the field and scored a touchdown with some guy filling in for uh, Taylor Lewan. But anyways, I don't want to take up all the questions. I know that Joan and Matthew uh, are ready I, to I, their I, I feel now. remiss if I don't at least give Josh Allen some level of credit because he is a better quarterback than what I watched two years ago. And I think that's, you know, people will get on Twitter and for some reason they'll still tweet at me and say, hey, Rodak, you thought he – For some reason. Right. For some reason. And I, I don't know if I ever really declared one way or another, when I was covering the team at least, on Twitter, what Josh Allen was going to be. And, um, you know, to his credit, I think he's gotten better. But I, the MVP discussion was way too premature, especially in light of what was happening elsewhere in the league and what was happening with Russell Wilson and guys who are much more obvious candidates. I'm sure everybody's excited because they haven't seen that here right. before. They didn't know what Lamar Jackson or – Patrick Mahomes, or even care what Russell Wilson was doing. They just right. were Aaron Rodgers. It was, oh, my God, we didn't expect this. Mm -hmm. Give all the awards. Right. And, and the way they were playing. to be talking about MVPs anyway. So, right, right. But if you're talking about an MVP after four games, I think Josh Allen had a very strong case. He's the reason they were 4-0. and Right, and that maybe is the, the saving grace for him, is that he was winning those games. He was but, the, off the NFL's offensive player of the month. Yeah, whatever. So that I means. guess that means he – and the offensive players always get the MVP award, so he was the – Alonzo, the defensive player of the month, one, one month for the Bills? Yeah, hell yes. Yeah, and now Bills fans hate the guy, so. Hell yeah. <laughs> How far we've come. But, yeah, I mean, it's just that they were winning because of him. I, I will completely agree with that sentiment but that's hard to replicate week after week. And I think we saw more of a back to, you know, regression to the mean sort of Josh Allen in this game. And if you have that and your defense plays like crap, like they did, you're not going to win. And um, that's, I think a valid concern going forward. And I think this game will remind everybody that, you know, Josh Allen's still probably a couple notches below the guy they could have drafted. And uh, I think if, if you're a Bills fan and you're still sitting there thinking, you know, the Bills got the better end of that trade, I think you're a little bit crazy. The Patrick Mahomes trade. Yeah, I will say Josh Allen at his regression to the mean is a lot better than what that used to mean. Uh, the regression right. to the mean for Josh Allen used to mean 160 yards, uh, touchdown, two or three interceptions, a bunch of rushing yards. Last Tuesday was not a good game for him, but it was still like better than he's been. Uh, you know, it's like even his bad games, it's weird that the passing offense is no longer the problem uh, for the Bills. Right. That That is like probably of everything on the team, you're like the passing offense will probably come through um, in spurts uh, in any given week almost everything else gives you a little bit of a reason for concern. The running game's not working. The defense is a mess. It's like, it is a, it is bizarro land for the bills. The, they're seventh in offensive DVOA, 27th in defensive DVOA. So it's, uh, it, it's been a weird season for a lot of reasons, but as Tim mentioned, this is kind of making you rethink everything you thought about the bills going into 2020. And it's true. And the best thing that might've happened to Josh Allen is the fact that he's not quite the same runner anymore because if he was trying to run and, and get around his other problems when he throws interceptions like he did on Tuesday night then he might get hurt and I think right now the Bills will just take a healthy Josh Allen who has a mediocre to potentially bad game 
over Josh Allen who's not available for eight games because he, you know, did whatever to his knee or his elbow or whatever. So I think uh, too, there's a realization. Um, I, and um, as Brian Dable and Sean McDermott learn more um, about about Josh Allen's evolution, that they're more comfortable with him as a passer. They don't need to have him run as much to risk those injuries or the turnovers. So I think that after seeing what he was capable of doing after a game or two, they, they don't need to let him run, which is similar, which is what happens with running quarterbacks. That's what happened with Cam Newton. That's what happens with Lamar Jackson. I mean, you let them run until they figure out the other stuff and then you pull it back. I mean, there are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL that have this reputation of being running quarterbacks and you take a look at their numbers and really they, they were at one point and they're not as they gain experience, uh, which is why I think people were so shocked to see Cam Newton running so much because he, yeah, he used to be that running quarterback and then he established himself as not. And now he's doing anyways. Um, That's true. And I remember in conversation. Let me just reset yeah. the show here for anybody who might uh, uh, be hanging on and wondering who all these people are. Just got in the car. Uh, we are joined. That's true. We're not in the car, uh, but if you're uh, if you're thumbing through here and uh, you've tuned out, uh, you've zoned out listening to these uh, voices, uh, you might need to, to be reminded not only that we're in conversation with Mike Rodak of AL.com, but that the Tim Graham Show is brought to you by Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. And it's the leading uh, accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. And CTBK pairs every project with a focus on human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on acquisitions and mergers. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Uh, Mike, uh, how much different has it been now that you've been doing it for a couple of years covering college football? And I say that, you know, Loosely. knowing that it's barely college football, you are pretty much covering professional football because it is bigger than just college football. But anyway, what's the dynamic like down there covering uh, Nick Saban and, uh, and one of the most storied franchises in college history? Well, I'm, I'm barely actually covering it in the sense that I'm there with my notepad and my laptop packing away in a press box. I've been, I haven't been to Tuscaloosa, the city of, in seven months. The last time I was in Tuscaloosa was the very last basketball game of last season. So we went all fall camp. The first couple games of this season, I, I haven't been there at all. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a, a symptom of, of 2020. That's not typical, but it doesn't really feel like I, I've been covering them because I've seen them once in person. I've seen the Alabama, Alabama football team once since New Year's Day, and that was last weekend uh, when I was in Mississippi. So I'm covering three games this year. It's a situation where the school is only allowing one person per outlet in the press box, and we have three regular writers who cover our team. So it's it's a rotation, basically. It's out of 10 games, I'm covering three. And um, But with that said – I'd imagine that last Saturday night, there's a lot of people tuned into that game. That was a ridiculous game. It's probably the, I mean, it has to be the highest scoring game I've ever, I've ever covered football wise, 63, 48 that Alabama won against Ole Miss. And 
Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. It's it's a NFL-type program, and we have a situation this week when Nick Saban tests positive and he has a, a Zoom call Wednesday night. I think there was 97 people on the, on the Zoom call. Whoa. Yeah, I, I can't remember, and not that we did Zoom calls for the Bills, but I, I don't think there was ever a press conference where there was even close to that many people. Maybe well, let's ask Matt. Matt, do you have any idea what uh, I mean? It's if you for people who are familiar enough with Zoom, it's about a page and a half on a gallery. Whatever you know, if you page over, I don't know how many people are max out on a gallery. What are we talking? Maybe thirty. Yeah, I think most. I'm thinking the most I've ever seen. Occasionally, I'll you know hit the participants, and you can see the number. And I'm trying to remember which one it might have been, but I I want to say we had. In the 40 range, but that was like a, an off, you know, occurrence. It was maybe one of the end of camp type ones where, you know, there was a lot of eyeballs on it um, or, or something like that. But yeah, 97. I mean, hey, I, I don't think the Bills are going to do anything that will be as newsworthy as Nick Saban getting COVID. But right. in all fairness, like that is a – the what top five top three most recognizable football coach in the country getting let's do COVID. the let's do the you know the the equivalent if sean mcdermott had covid there wouldn't there still wouldn't be no it would be a thing it would be a thing you but know, it wouldn't like, be like this but it wouldn't even be that wouldn't even be on the same level as like sean payton or doug peterson getting covid and even those felt like blips on the radar uh in some ways, uh, Sean Payton less so because it was early on, but Nick Saban, uh, I think where he's located geographically um, plays a part in it. You know, the fact that it's what a week or two after the president got it. And then it's a few weeks before the election and it's in the throes of college football season. And he might not be at the game in person, all those. Well, and you have programs shutting down. And I think people concerned about, college football being able to finish the season. And I think that people also correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, I mean, we're sitting here, we're talking around you as though you're not here, but if uh, that Saban having it is like college football, having it, it's not just the Alabama coach. This is the, you know, maybe, you know, I guess Ed Orgeron, similar situation. There are very few people that's like, Oh my God, this could impact all of college football. Right. I mean, this isn't uh, Kent State's coach getting it. Fox News. This is Kent State's former coach. Yeah, you're right. That is. It is Kent State's coach. Well, Fox News is one of the participants in the uh, in the Zoom call last night, and I would assume that they, you know, ran the the video on air. I don't know. Maybe they took it live. I don't know. I don't watch Fox News, but you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably at some debate or whatever. Clay Travis. (laughs) Right, but that it, it kind of it's just fuel for that whole debate it's almost as if Saban's a proxy for the the national argument that goes on about COVID and you know you have people down here saying uh, you know Saban wore a mask all the time and that proves that masks aren't effective and uh, Saban says he's fine he doesn't have any symptoms so that proves that you know this is just the flu and we shouldn't care about it so it just kind of stirs all these arguments that were taking place outside of football until now and now you have someone like Saban who has it and just kind of, it gives everybody a, a punching bag almost to, to kind of go at it uh, with one another. So yeah, I mean, it's a big story. It's, it's, um, it's three days before the biggest game of the year too. I think that kind of adds to it when you have 
Georgia coming into town on Saturday. It's, you know, Georgia doesn't play Alabama that often because of the divisional alignment. And, you know, it's, I think the first time in seven years that they've played in the regular season and you have the number two, number three team in the country. And you have Saban now who probably can't be at the game, although he just had his radio show here on Thursday night as we talk. And he's still holding out hope that maybe it's a false positive and he could be at the game. And he's also kind of railing against the, um, you know, the NCAA rule that prohibits any sort of technology from entering the game. So basically his, in his mind, he had the idea that he could, he could be at home on a zoom call talking to players in the locker room or on the phone, talking to Steve Sarkeesian, the offensive coordinator is going to be running the game on the sideline. He can't do that. There's, there's rules against that. And he seems upset as you might be imagined, as you might imagine that he can't do that. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting. I mean, he's, he's already talking about, you know, why don't we change the rule, et cetera. It's, it's a lot of stuff I think that makes people outside of Alabama kind of roll their eyes at Saban or even the idea and he, he floated this tonight of, of being at the game in the stadium somewhere, but being alone in isolation in some room and then having his headset on. And well, who was the coach that did it from his hospital bed last year? That was Hugh, Hugh Freeze. Freeze. Hugh yeah. Freeze. Right. right. Who, the famous picture of him holding up his, his thumb, you can <laughs> yeah. see in the, in the box. And that was, he, he had some sort of back surgery, I think. Um, but I guess, in their mind, that was the press box, and you know he could be there because he's not infecting anybody with the back. It wasn't contagious. Uh, right, back injuries aren't contagious. How right. is Nick Saban's? He's been pretty good with the messaging on COVID, um, mm-hmm. going back to the spring, and like you mentioned, down in Alabama, I think it's more of a an argument over COVID than. Um, in other parts of the country. Um, but Nick Saban seemed like he was out front kind of being big about masks and, and the messaging and, and all that early on. How has this maybe impacted – you mentioned some of his frustration. How is he balancing those two things, which I'm sure is not easy? Well, you know, he was very – he was happy, I would say, last night with – we were talking to them just about how – smoothly it went because he he learned that about it at 1 p.m yesterday and they had a practice that started i think 2 33 o'clock so he had to go home right away in fact i think he was in a interview with tom rinaldi for a college game day in his office when the trainer came in and, and pulled him aside and said hey you have covid you got to go home so he goes home he sits down and the video people at alabama scramble and they get a, a live feed of practice for him the all 22 actually and, you know, so Saban was actually giddy that he could watch the L-22 during practice. He said, it's a wide angle. I can see everything that's going on. You can grade all the players in real time. And he had a manager, you know, like a student manager on the phone during practice so he could tell them, you know, run to play again and yell at them or whatever. So he was kind of in his glory. And he was talking last night about how smoothly it was and how nothing's really changed. He can do everything from home. But then he said, I'm not quite sure about the rules for Saturday. we got to look into that for the game. And then it was actually Alex Scarborough at ESPN, who covers Alabama and the SEC, late last night, who dug up this document that the NCAA had from this offseason that interpreted the rules in light of COVID and basically said, if you have a quarantine coach, they can't communicate at all. you you got to be at home in isolation. You can't talk to anybody. So then Saban finds that out today, and then you could tell tonight when he had his radio show that he was just 
furious about it um, because it kind of screwed with all of his plans that he had for this game and, you know, being in Steve Sarkeesian's ear and, you know, running the game from afar, you know, and the, the reasoning that he gave was that, you know, I, I don't want you guys to criticize Sark. If something goes wrong in the game and he made the decision because he's acting alone without my input, it's not fair to criticize him. So I want to be the one that stands in front and, and takes the, the blame if anything goes wrong. Well, Mike, I'm uh, hopefully I'm not putting you too much on the spot with this question. I know that that's a college thing, but you also have, uh, you have so many different nuanced perspectives on, on many things, but uh, well, I hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot here, but your wife is in the medical mm -hmm. community. She yep. has to, she's in hospitals all the time. Yep. Do you have any personal insights? You know, we, the three of us, we, and mm -hmm. I think most people don't have somebody in their lives who, who does have, what is she dealing with and how does, how does that, I guess, color your, your outlook on, on the world in general and having to deal with all these different protocols? Yeah, I mean, she hasn't dealt with it a whole lot. Um, I mean, there was a spike in Alabama this summer, I want to say probably in June, July, August, somewhere around there, where like her hospital is dealing with a, a large number of it. But at the same time, she's not in respiratory care. She's not in emergency care. So it's not as if like she's seen those patients directly. It only really comes into play she's an OBGYN if there's a surgery that she has to do and then and there wasn't actually the case here where the night before she was expecting to get up at 5 a.m and got a call at 7 p.m the night before saying her, her patient tested positive and surgery can't happen so you know from a practical standpoint I think that's tough just you know logistically everyday life can get disrupted I think for us I mean we have a 18 month old and if he has a fever like he had one a couple of weeks ago, he has an ear infection. Well, they don't know. Is it COVID? Is it not? You have to bring him to the doctor just by the virtue of him being at the doctor with a fever, they have to test him for COVID. And then the test, in our case, I think it took almost 24 hours to come back. And during that time, we're supposed to quarantine um, because we don't know if he has it or not. So, you know, I think that's probably the closest we have actually been to it in our everyday lives. I don't know if it you know, affects us that much, but. But do uh, the Rodax view um, everything that's going on in terms of safety measures, protocols? Is it too, is it overboard? Uh, are people taking it? You know, I, no, I, I think the way, no, yeah, I think the way it's been handled is, is good. I think it seems like we've kind of gotten to a point, not just as a state here, but as a nation where we've almost got back to our everyday lives, but wearing a mask. And with these certain protocols in place, I think, you know, we've, you've kind of run the spectrum where for a couple months there we had the shutdowns and nothing was happening. And I think even people in the medical community probably realized that was too much. And I think that it's fair to say, you know, we probably share that opinion, but I don't think there's any problem with wearing a mask. I mean, Mallory's done it every single day of her career in medicine. And it obviously is there for a reason. Um, when you're in a hospital, when you're performing a surgery, which she does, you know, on a, a multiple times a week basis. So um, for people who I think question that, I think is, that's a little silly. Um, now, is it the end all be all? No, I think it's clearly people who wear masks all the time still get COVID. But I, I think if you're not doing that, at least it's, you know, I think there's some lack of um, respect or, or lack of 
just trying to do the right thing for not only yourself, but other people around you. Mike, what did you make? Were you surprised to learn today when Nate Oates said that he tested positive for COVID in July and reading what you wrote about that, it seemed, my interpretation, it seemed a very kind of nonchalant. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, I had the flu. Right. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really break, like we, this was the second time we've talked to him since the summer. And the first time he didn't bring it up, I don't think anybody asked any specific COVID questions, maybe more about the players, but even this one today, I mean, it was probably four or five questions in when finally I asked like, hey, like you might've heard that Nick Saban and Greg Byrne, EAD tested positive yesterday. Like, how does that affect you? And as I was kind of asking the question on Zoom, of course, you can kind of see people's reaction and Nate was kind of laughing to himself. And you know, when that happens, he's thinking of something and uh, he just sort of said, he's like, yeah, you know, I, she's like, shoot, I had COVID this summer. <laughs> like. And he, was, he just kind of laughed it off and said he didn't really have any symptoms. And um, to him, it wasn't really a big deal. And he just kind of moved on with his life, which, you know, I think is, is the stats probably back up that part of it, that most people who get it are going to be fine. And I'm sure Nick Saban will be fine. And, you know, obviously NFL players who have gotten it seem to have been fine. But it's still that the outside chance of a, a bad case, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez with the Red Sox, who's still – like I read this week, he still can't even walk on a treadmill because of myocarditis. I mean, that's, that's obviously a more serious incident. So, you know, I, I, Nate obviously has to be a little bit careful, I think, and just not trying to make too much light of it. Um, in the sense, not in the sense of being in Alabama, I think a lot of people in Alabama probably agree if he's sort of laughing it off. But at the same time, like we talked about, Alabama is a, the, the program itself is a national program. And, um, you know, I think they're very, aware and um, concerned to some extent of, of having a bad headline in, you know, the Washington Post or New York Times or um, CNN, because those are the outlets that, that cover this team. I mean, the New York Times had a reporter at at least two, three, maybe four Alabama home games last year, the New York Times. Um, so that just goes to show you kind of where this, this program sits. Mike, do you feel comfortable enough to handicap uh, Georgia, Alabama for this weekend since it is such a big game? Yeah. Do you want me to? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you had a, yeah. a specific <laughs> line in No, mind. I was just, you know, like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> all right, well, let's wrap it up. Yeah, well, give it, tell us. <laughs> well, the line moved. So if you're talking like true handicapping, I think um, the line right now is. is well, give us the, I mean, the matchups. I mean, what, do you, right. what, are, what are the prime matchups here? Yeah, I mean, Alabama's offense, like, we all saw it. I mean, anybody who watched Alabama the last two years with Tua quarterback or even before that, um, when Tua came in, you know, in the national championship game three years ago, this is an offense that is as good as any in the country. It's completely flipped the script for Alabama from what they used to be with Derrick Henry, Trent Richardson, and those guys where it was completely just grinded out with the running game and just kind of pound people in the submission. Um and, and to, I think some people surprised they've been able to maintain that even with two are gone. And so it's Mac Jones, who's their quarterback. He wasn't the highest you know, recruited guy um, out of Jacksonville. I think a, a four-star recruit, um, borderline three-star, like 400th in the country. And I mean, he's turned himself into a top three Heisman candidate right now. I mean, Kyle Trask at Florida, obviously Trevor Lawrence, um, Justin Fields, once he starts playing, we'll have to see. But Max right there, his, his pass rating is the best in the country right now. 
he looks the part. I mean, the stats are right there with, with what they've done with Tua. And um, he's doing it, too, without two of the receivers that Tua had last year and, and Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs, who are in the NFL. So they still have a lot of talent around them, but I think it's pretty impressive what Mac is doing. And you, you have that unstoppable force of the Alabama offense versus Georgia's defense, which under Kirby Smart, who came up with Nick Saban, ran that Alabama defense in its glory years. That's the best in the country right now. And that's the unstoppable, the unstoppable force versus the immovable object. Who wins? I don't know. Um, that's that's going to be the battle of the game. But I think what really Alabama fans are most – they care about more than that is, is their defense just because of how poorly it played at Ole Miss. Didn't look anything like what Saban's defenses have looked like. And, um, and they gave up 647 yards. It was the worst in school history. And Lane Kiffin to be and the Lane guy. Kiffin. You know, that's right. probably like – that's got to get under their skin too. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's like a, a former Belichick assistant beating beating Belichick. You know, it's, it just, it didn't feel right for a lot of Alabama fans and, you know, they're ready to fire the defensive coordinator, Pete Golding. And um, I don't know if they've gone as far as to question whether statement can still coach defense, but I think a lot of people are legitimately questioning, can they ever get back to the level they played at, or is this the new identity of Alabama where they're going to score 50, 55 points a game and just try to hold on on defense. Um, that doesn't always work, as we saw last year against LSU. I mean, they they got beat in that game. and It seems like that's just football. I don't know what it – I mean, yeah. yes, you can plan to the – you can look at the crowd aspect of it, the fact that it's quieter in stadiums. Maybe the defenses didn't have enough chance to develop chemistry or get on the same page because of no preseason games, whatever – but it seems to me, and it's just a feel, this is not, I don't have numbers and nobody will have numbers based on this until things get back to normal. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's just seems like this is football now. And I think it's an evolution of, you know, as people have been saying and threatening, Hey, before uh, for too long, it's going to be seven on seven passing drills, or it's going to seem that way. And to me, it seems like it's finally upon us that no matter who you are, you can't be stopped. I mean, you have to be borderline incompetent, uh, to get stopped. Uh, teams that have no business scoring 30 are doing it like it's no business, like, like it's no big deal. Well, I mean, Coach O at LSU says, it's basketball on grass. You know, that's, <laughs> it's, that's what he calls it. So it's uh, <laughs> that's anybody who's followed this show for a long period of time knows that that's also Mike Rodak's Nate Oates impersonation. <laughs> and I still have yet to, uh, you know, to show off that to him. Don't do but it. I, I might, Don't do, my advice that. to you is not to do it. I think they will impressed. appreciate it. It could only, it could only hurt your, your relationship with him. Go Tigers. Now do Nate. Yeah, that's – now I've gotten off track. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something where I think a lot of people are – I know Matt has some thoughts on it, too. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot figure it out. I don't know that anybody can, can figure it out. Um, you know, asking defensive players, asking defensive coaches. Um, I think, like you said, Tim, nobody will really know until they get back to what football used to be like with crowds and everything else before they can be like, oh, this is what we were missing. Like, oh, we needed three weeks of training camp or a couple of preseason games or, man, like now that there's a crowd, now I remember what I was missing because – Nobody seems to be able to put their finger on it right now. And, and it's receivers are wide open all over the place. Yeah. It's, it's, I, there's the other factor too, and this is more NFL than college, but it probably trickles down like everything does is the, the officials 
are calling games in a certain way um, where there's not as much holding there. There's not as much, um, you know, of, of these offensive penalties. They're being more ticky tack with the pass interference. Like you said, it feels like we got sped up into the future because of what happened. I know sometimes you would read those, columns um you know media columns roundtables of like what will the nfl look like in 50 years and people are like there will be no fans everybody will watch from home and <laughs> games will be 70 to 60 and i'm like we'll playing well, an airline in an airplane hangar right now yeah there'll be virtual reality all over the place and it's like well it, i feel like we're living in the future a little bit there are no fans i don't know if that's 100 the future but uh people are getting comfortable with watching these games at home and people like when points are scored. People enjoy offensive football, um, not unanimously, but for the most part, nobody's complaining that the Bills are now winning games 35 to 32. And I would imagine people in Alabama, well, you know, maybe they're more throwback in style and they like their, they're tied to be punching people in the mouth and winning seven to three. I bet you a lot of them are, are down there saying, you know, roll tide. Let's, let's win 60 to 40. Like, you know, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. You know me to always look on the, the sunny side of things, but I, I wrote after the game and they, they won by 15 points. I said it was a 15 point win. And even though they gave up 647 yards, the worst in, in school history, well, Saban's given up 600 yards twice before. And they won both of those games, too. So what's really the big deal? I mean, if they win by 50. They should give up that. They should just go out there and say, go ahead and take 600 yards. We'll, right. Yeah. Spot them 600 The data yards. says we're undefeated when that happens. Talk about handicapping a game. Yeah, I mean, it's um, – I mean, Saban talks – I mean, this is a question, too, that's come up on the college level because we have – it's actually fairly entertaining. The SEC coaches conference call every week on Wednesday where they run through all 14 coaches in the span of, you know, two or three hours and – it's a question where you have somebody asking every single coach, you know, what do you think of of the offensive football right now in the conference or in, in college football in general? It's it's something that's I think coaches see too. Um, Saban likes to talk a lot about the rules where you can block downfield as offensive linemen more in college than you can in the NFL. And that helps out the RPO game. And when you have RPOs going, you can run the quick slants and you're just moving the ball down the field as, you know, Alabama has done the last couple of years. But, you know, I, I do think teams will catch up eventually. I mean, I remember talking about the Wildcat 12 years ago when the, when the Dolphins first brought it out. And Tim, I think you were covering that. And then people were talking about how that would revolutionize football. And now it, it's just a gimmick. Like people will run it a couple plays a game here and there and, you know, it's a backup quarterback in there and he runs for two yards and you kind of forget about that play or, you know, Chip Kelly when he was at Oregon and everybody's talking about how fast they're running and how that's going to be the new age of football. And to some extent, that's true, but I don't know if anybody really runs their offense quite as fast as Chip. I think people realized you, you kind of have to find a happy medium and, um, you know, there's probably going to be, I think, an ebb and flow here where it could be a different story. I, I remember a year or two talking about defense in the NFL, you know, the, the resurgence of defense, the resurgence of the running game. So it still could be a year to year proposition where, you know, it could be a different storyline next year, essentially. My hypothesis is that it's the crowds. I don't know that mm -hmm. we'll a hundred percent get that answer, but I really think the lack of crowds uh, and I don't know when I flip on college football sometimes and there's a game in Georgia and there's like 40,000 people in the stands, it feels like, uh, 
And then I am like, well, maybe crowds aren't as big a deal down there, but the silent stadium, I feel like has benefited Josh Allen. We see the way he gets excited and uh, overhyped up. Uh, And I feel like that's probably true for a lot of, uh, even when you're the home team and you're playing offense, it's not dead silent. Um, and relaying plays is easier. Communication's easier. It's a and- great point, Matt, too. And it's not necessarily the communications of it. It's the stuff between your ears of the guys. Everything's quieter. Player. Yeah, it's – he's – you know, you're, we had Brent Vegan on the show just a few weeks ago, and he's talking about how calm Josh Allen looks. And I guess I'm derelict for, to not pick up on that, but maybe that's why. Maybe he's so calm because when he comes out of that tunnel, he doesn't have all those cheers that gets him, you know – and in a good way, many times, like, I want to perform for these people. Now there's no people to perform for. He's just... feels like practice. Right. And, and I think when it feels that way and you're an offensive player, it's, it, it caters to you. Defense, you love the crowd. Um, you know, that you're trying you to... think as much. Defense you're trying to end. play with energy yeah. as much as possible. On offense, you're trying to play with precision and timing and execution. And all those things are great when you don't have a crowd you're just walking up there and doing your thing and I think even I don't know again it's going to be so hard to prove and it's why it's a a weird you know hypothesis to throw out there because I don't know that we'll get the answer ever but there were what eight or nine thousand people at the stadium um on Tuesday um not Josh Allen's best game uh something to monitor he had a great game against Miami um, but that's always a lame crowd anyways. And there was a lot of Bills fans, a lot of Bills fans, not a people, not a lot of people there, but I think even the home games, like you said, performing for those people. Yes. They're quiet on offense. Bills fans are, are smart football fans. They know to not be going nuts when the offense is on the field, but Josh Allen still knows there's 70,000 people that he badly wants to impress watching him and they're reacting when he scrambles out of the pocket. Uh, the place gets loud. And I really think that's having a, a big effect on offenses around the league, you know, and, and the scoring, I think the defenses badly miss having, uh, you know, the environment because you got to be crazy to play defense and it helps to have the adrenaline of the crowd and, and the atmosphere that comes with an NFL game. What about a guy like, Nathan Peterman. I mean, does he throw five interceptions against the Chargers like he did if there's not a crowd in that building? Yeah. He's not feeling each yes. one. He might. Like, well, no. What about like even EJ Manuel? I'm thinking back to like the London game in 2015 where he had like two or three turnovers in a row there. And like I can still picture the music in my head, you know, that was playing after each of those Jaguars touchdowns and like. There's just some, I mean, they still play music in the stadiums, but there has to be like an environmental. Yeah, the mistakes action. don't snowball as much because it's, it's easier to reset. You walk to the sideline and you're like, wow, nobody's here. Like, you could practice. You know, I was talking to some kickers about this before the season because it's like, well, maybe it's easier to kick with no crowd because you're just hanging out, kicking in the backyard. Nobody's there to, to watch you screw up. But there's the flip side of like, man, when I have a 55 yarder, I'd like to know 70,000 people are watching me. It gives me a little adrenaline boost. So, but I, I just think when you're playing offense, you don't want that. You want to be calm. You want to stay steady. And, and when you have a bad play like Nathan Peterman or EJ Manuel or even Josh Allen, it doesn't snowball as much because there's nobody 
booing. There's nobody uh, going nuts over, you know, what happened. Uh, the energy in the stadium is completely different. It's yeah, let really me, weird. It reminds me of this quote. I just looked it up. Uh, Brett Favre, I talked to him last year when things weren't going so well for Josh Allen. And I had a nice conversation with Brett Favre in which he gave advice to Josh Allen through me. They, he hadn't met him yet. And I think they've since made a connection. But uh, this was when Josh was running too much and fumbling too much. And uh, Brett Favre said, I don't think anyone would question his commitment or toughness. It's obvious when a player is or is not committed. Players and fans alike know this kid really, really wants to help his team and this city win. We get that. As a player, you can feed off that. But it can become toxic that every time you run the ball, you want to steamroll someone because the fans love it. And two years later, you're beat up and out of football. And now the fans are loving the next guy. It can be a slippery slope. So, um, you know, that was, you know, Favre, by the way, needed almost 20 years to rush for 14 touchdowns. A lot of people think of Favre as uh, because he was such a swashbuckler as somebody who'd take off and run and score, wouldn't use his legs a lot. He would extend plays, but he wasn't a runner. Um, but yeah, it's, um, you know, yeah, his was smart, more the fearless like, aspect of of wanting of here of fee, of feeding off the crowd to get reckless, and he hasn't he hasn't really done that. So that's something to look out for. Well, that's why I think I think the effects are equal offense, defense, or maybe close to equal. I I would not spend too much time worrying about or assigning the present day the COVID situation to why it's scoring is up. This is a multi-year trend that's been going on, professional football, college football, high school football. Everybody plays this way trying to – obviously you want to score as many points as you can, but it's, Alabama was the exception to prove the rule a couple of years ago, and now it's almost if you're a team like the Bills have been, uh, University of Buffalo is a team like this now where your strengths are running the ball, controlling the clock, playing defense. It's almost like do you have a lower ceiling playing that way? And Tennessee Titans – were a team that went to the AFC championship game playing that way last year. And maybe they're every, every league seems to have one team that's trying to win a different way. And maybe is showing that you can play smash mouth football still, but it's never a trend that people didn't follow and try to play like Alabama and people aren't trying to play like army and the smash mouth teams that do have success, but everybody's trying to play fast, spread you out, have a multi-dynamic quarterback that can run and pass. That's just – it's almost like the analytics in baseball and basketball. That just seems to – maybe not been proven, but theorized that that's the best way to play, the optimal way to play football now at all levels. I think that, yeah, it's, it's coaches deciding maybe they were too uneasy about it or felt that it was not a legitimate brand of football to rely on officiating to help you with the passing game because of interference. You know, it used to be the old Woody Hayes saying, uh, I only run the ball because when you throw, three things can happen and two of them are bad. Well, there's a lot of good things that can happen now when you throw the ball, even if you don't complete the pass, you know, because of contact rules uh, for, you know, or interference. So you can't, you know, there's all kinds of things um, that can go in your favor or the quarterback can run now, uh, play breaks down. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, that the run game and a guy, it takes a guy like Derrick Henry, who's just a, a freak uh, to, to be established as like a no doubt running back. You know, it's like, of course, Derrick Henry, you're going to want to give him the ball, but even against the bills the other night, it was, you know, he averaged three yards to carry. And, 
and the Bills still lost by 26. Yeah, the weird thing is that you need to – all the best offenses seem to be running a ton of play action and things like that. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom all the time was like, oh, what do you have to do to have a good play action game? Even when I asked Tredavious White this, this year, uh, you know, what makes – what are the challenges when a team uses a lot of play action? And he said, or who are the best – what makes a good play action team? And he's like, well, you got to be able to run the ball. It's not really true. Like the Titans used a lot of play action – uh, the other night, they weren't running the ball well. The play action still worked fine. In fact, there's not much of a correlation at all. The Bills use a ton of play action, and they have not been running the ball well. It's not like, oh, I need to respect Devin Singletary. You don't need to respect him. If Josh Allen fakes the handoff, it makes you pause either way. It, nobody's saying, oh, you know, he's faking that handoff, but that guy sucks, so I'm just going to go right at the quarterback. <laughs> you know, you know you can get Maybe burned you like anybody that plays in the NFL can burn you as a running back. So, you know, he's going to hand it off to him at some point. Um, he, guy doesn't need to be good. So it's funny. It's like as running games have become less of an emphasis, play action passing has become more of an emphasis and is still super effective. And most of the best offenses use it to great success. So um, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting time for offensive football. Mike, any closing thoughts? Because uh, I've been around you enough to know that you've just totally disconnected from this conversation, no, which means no. you want to leave. No, uh, you have I, something else you want to do. No, I've seen this act. <laughs> Wait, Mike. We've all, all of us on this call have seen this act. We know. I think you should fire him again before. Uh... <laughs> I want to know if he likes this. You can't fire him now. He comes at a great rate. <laughs> he doesn't have to go around. I don't have to pay him anymore. To adjust I'm not paying you for this, am I? I don't, I don't think I'll send so. you something. I'll send you a little right. something. Send me for a old time sake. arrangements. No, I, I was actually thinking, I was thinking about Zach Moss and just how much Bills fans talked about him all off season as this, you know, this great draft pick and the steal by Bean and, you know, one of the classic guys you just could not believe he was still on the board. I, I know he's, he's hurt. Right. But, but that I was mean, why he's always hurt. Right. Wasn't that the issue with him in college? Yeah. Just, uh, it's people get a little excited about guys. I think before that, I mean, people were excited about Zay Jones when they traded up for him. They couldn't believe he was still on the board, so they had to trade up for him. It's just, I hope people understand. You just got to think sometimes, and you got to use some rational thought. And that's really what I was thinking about. It's a losing sorry. battle. This is I'm a great. If anybody, if anybody knows that, you know, you know it, Mike. It's a losing battle. And people got, I think, really excited about Devin Singletary last year and, and his potential and just hasn't really panned out. Like, it's just the excitement where things snowball forward, so to speak. I, I think people need to check themselves a little bit on. And I apologize for being the, you know, the guy who polices that, but that's why I'm here, I guess. They were excited <laughs> about Le'Veon Bell today. Right. And, of course. 12 hours he played for the Bills. Right. Now he's going to play for the Chiefs. In, in four days, maybe, and you know he's going to suck. You know he's washed. Who up. needs him? Plays that game, right? Oh, he so. won't be able to play because he's got to pass like five COVID tests, and I don't oh, think right. he has time. But the point stands. Whenever in the span does. of twenty-four hours, it went from, ah, look at the Jets, how stupid they are. That that bust of a free agent signing to, oh, the Bills are interested. Ah, it'd be a great fit. Be a great fit. Be a great addition. Go get him, Bean. You know. Big baller Bean getting after it again. And then he picks somebody else and it's like, ah, he's washed up. Who needs him? It's great watching. Cancer. Me, yeah. 
It's great. And I watching the fans yeah. understand too that the people that they worship, I think, look at it more rationally than they do. Like I think the people who are in these positions know that they screwed up, and they aren't making excuses for every single thing that happens and, and trying to rationalize everything, every single thing that happens. Like they are normal, functioning people with good brains. Like that's where that's how they got those jobs. It's the best skill to have as a GM is to be like, oh. This guy I picked a couple of years ago is no good. Better find an upgrade before they find an upgrade for me. Like, right. you know, I think that's what, you know, Bill Belichick's always done really well is he screws up a lot um, and usually is quick to admit his screw ups by way of moving on from a guy. And yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to have, but yeah, there's the fallacy among fans that things can only get better. How often do you see a comment or a tweet that says, Oh, well, Dawson Knox is only going to get better. Uh, Josh Allen's only going to get better. Like, Zach, Mo- Devin so's Singletary. the rest of the division. Nowhere to go but up, you know? So's, so's the rest of the division. It's like, well, actually, yeah, they're going to sign some free agents too, and uh, their guys get a year older, and they get a little more experience. And mm-hmm. quarterbacks or players, uh, progression is not linear. Sometimes you just don't get better. Uh, sometimes you get worse. Uh, these things happen, but uh, I like the hope. I like the uh, the faith that people continue to have. How many Bills fans? Sorry to cut you off, Tim. How I was many just going to say we're talking about the the salary cap. You know how much cap space that the Bills had this past offseason, or even the year before that, and. I mean, have they really? Is that really the reason why they're better? I mean, or is it? Josh Allen being better, like you go out and sign the guys that they did. Is that is that the reason why they're four and one? I don't know. Well, like, you got you know they did they, spend money. Contract you know, was part of know, it. Giving you know acquiring Stephon Diggs, being able to take that on, uh, Mitch Morse, uh, the offensive lineman that they brought in. So yeah, there's some of that. Um, but the automatic automatic assumption of okay, well next offseason the Bills have this. Oh, you know, I see. Because there's too. money to spend, they're going to actually. spend it correctly. Yeah, right. that's that bothers me. Well, I will say though, this has been. I like some variety uh, in coverage, and to have the Bills at four and one is a nice change than uh, to what I've gotten used to uh, since I switched from the NHL to the NFL in 2007. Um, and thank God I switched off the Sabers to give the NFL a try, or else I'd uh, I would have left the business. I think if I were covering the Sabres uh, for the past uh, 13 years, that would have given me 20 years covering, covering some bad hockey, including a bankruptcy and owner in handcuffs and a lot of fun stuff. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on. Um, I didn't think that uh, we'd be on this long, but uh, here we are uh, enjoying ourselves and uh, I'll let you go so you can enjoy yourself some more. I will. I only have a little bit of wine left, so. You know, that's not what I meant. Well, enjoy yourself, too. <laughs> that goes without saying. Uh, well, Mike Rodak of AL. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Did you have closing uh, thoughts, Mike? It, it probably wasn't appropriate, so I'll pass on that. <laughs> it's, it's, there's no FCC to worry about. You can say whatever you want. Yeah, you can get you fired from, from your current job, though. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> you say the wrong thing here. <laughs> we can't hire you back. <laughs> Hey, anything that'll give us uh, some clicks and some downloads uh, in the Southeast. I mean, that's really the target audience for me. I've been trying to grow my, uh, grow my show down there. Tim is trying to compete with Clay Travis. I want to ask Mike, I saw you retweeted somebody a couple of months ago, weeks ago. They don't, people in Alabama aren't sure you're real. 
because they haven't really seen enough of you. Well, yeah, we have a, a text service on a, on our website that we started a couple months ago, and people for five dollars a month can have the privilege of, of texting me. To which there's a an Alabama basketball super fan who was tweeting about me and essentially said like, "Who the hell is Mike Rodak, and why would I pay five dollars a month to text somebody who's not even real?" True. <laughs> Which, I mean, he makes a good point. I'll put yeah, it that way. Maybe the best point. How right. ma- what do you think's the the higher number, the number of people who would pay $5 to have Mike Rodak text them or the number of people who would pay $5 to have Mike Rodak stop texting them? Well, I think we might be trending towards the latter at some point here. So. I think it would be an interesting exercise if for charity you did a thing where you re- did like dueling um, – uh, crowdfunding and it all goes to charity and see to keep me on Twitter or get me off Twitter and see and like Didn't what it, Joe Licata do something like that that was John Morrow wasn't it Oro okay Oro did it but it was only temporary it was for a month was what well, was anyways I've, I've thought about doing that oh that was at your um your fundraiser yeah that's right okay I was thinking of Licata put out a Twitter poll I think during the show a couple years ago on who's more hated or it was me or, Mike Rodak or, Sullivan. or Jerry Sullivan. That's what it was. I'm surprised Bills fans didn't pay $5 just to troll text you on that Alabama line. I'm, I'm surprised. Have the access to tell you how much better your replacement is and how you never. Actually a brilliant way for newspapers to make money. Right. I'm surprised that nobody created some pseudonym and fake email and was sending me stuff. So at least I'd rather Maybe you should advertise it to Bills fans. Maybe they're not AL. But I'll tweet tonight and I'll retweet it. Yeah, maybe I will. (laughs) All right. When you're done done enjoying yourself. I will. Hey, uh, thanks for doing this, Mike. It's always great to visit with you. Hopefully under uh, regular circumstances, we'll be able to get together under the same roof and enjoy a beer again. And Mm -hmm. um, I can meet meet this baby of yours. I'll do that before I have my beer, though. You don't want. To I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the baby will be. Uh, will, will be indulging, but I might uh, decide it's time to play play a game of catch. Okay. If you if you didn't, if you say hey, you, you want to hold Harry? I'll be like, yeah, come on, let's play some catch. All right. All right. I'll put on it. All right. Good deal. Uh, Mike Rodak from AL.com here on TGAF, brought to you by CTBK CPAs and BCs. Let's uh, make it all. Uh, Make it all initials. Uh, Mike, great to have you.